I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 29. As we can continue our studies through the book of Exodus, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 21 together this evening. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Oh Lord, we give you thanks that we bow before an amazing triune God who rules and reigns over all, who sits in thrones in the heavens, a place in which no man can encroach, who rules and reigns in sovereign goodness over all things, who is at the same time our loving and tender shepherd, guiding and directing our steps, working in all manner of trials, hardships, and difficulties, your wonderful persevering grace. Help us even this night to grow in our submission to your truth. We want to see the Lord Jesus more clearly, to see our need for him, that we might delight to respond in increased gratitude and devotion to you. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Now, this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bowl of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod and the breastpiece, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head, and shall put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering." Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces, and wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces in its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram. And Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons, and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons, and his sons' garments with him. 
says the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now let's remember that this is the word of God to Moses atop Mount Sinai for these 40 days and 40 nights. It's this period of sustained communion with the living God that this is the content of what the Lord once preserved in His Word from that time together on Sinai. Now, the reason that I keep mentioning this is because of how significant this intimate communion really is between Moses and the Lord. Just think of it. Who else had such a wonderful privilege No one in redemptive history other than the eternal Son of God had such a lasting, sustained conversation with the living God. Now, perhaps part of our struggle in reading through this section of the Bible that goes through all these minute details of the tabernacle and furnishings and now the priesthood is to try to make sense of all of this. Why is there so much detail? Why such descriptive and even graphic language of entrails and pieces of animals being ripped and the manipulation of blood. Why do we need to know all of these things? Not only because of how foreign and far removed all of this is from my own cultural setting, but if all of this is abrogated in the work of Christ as our final high priest, then what relevance is there for me in my own life? What is there for me to learn? And perhaps some of that confusion contributes to the temptation that we might have to just skip over this portion of Scripture. But you see, if this is the content of the revelation that Moses received from the Lord in that unique experience atop Sinai, if this is what the living God determined for him to hear, if this is what the living God preserved for us, then we would be wise to give our attention to the purpose of these things and to consider the ongoing relevance to our lives even today. And I would argue that the more that we learn of the priesthood, the more that we learn of the office of priest, the more that we learn of the nature of the priesthood, even the more that we learn about this ordination of priests and this consecration ceremony, the more that we meditate and reflect upon these things, really the more we're learning about three critical doctrines, our sin our salvation in Christ, and our response of consecration. I mean, just think about the heinous nature of our sin and how it's conveyed in this graphic image of killing and manipulation of blood. Think about the wonder of the priestly mediatorial work of our Savior that meets all of that in His final sacrifice upon the cross. And then think of the calling that that places upon us of this life of devotion and consecration to the Lord in response to the gift of our salvation. Now, last week, we looked at all the various garments of the priest. You might recall that the emphasis was primarily upon the garments of the high priest. And tonight, we begin looking at the ordination of the priest. Now, here, of course, is the instruction of what will be carried out later, and we find that in the book of Leviticus, chapters 8 and 9, when Aaron and his sons are consecrated in this ceremony that we read about here. Now, the first thing that we see in our text is instruction on getting ready for this ordination ceremony. And so, this is our first point this evening, simply getting ready. Now, typically when I prepare for any project around my house, and by no means am I using myself as some sort of example of how to do it yourself on a home improvement project, 
More often than not, it's just better for me to call a professional than attempt to do it myself. But let's say this is a project that I can handle, or at least a project that I convince myself that I can handle. I try to limit my trips to Lowe's. I've gotten it down to two as my record. And I try to limit the trips to the garage to get all the tools together and try to put it all together in a centralized location as I think the project through from beginning to end. But that's kind of what we see here in verses 1 through 3. The Lord instructs Moses on how things are going to unfold on that ordination day with this consecration ceremony. And to consecrate is simply to set something or someone apart for special or sacred use. Now, sometimes it's objects that can be consecrated or devoted to the Lord. But of course, here we're learning about people for the office of priests who are to be set apart or consecrated. Now, we'll learn later in the text, and we'll see this more next time, that this ceremony is to be repeated every time a new high priest is appointed. And so, as that high priest is consecrated, he is given the privilege of performing these duties on behalf of the people before the Lord. Now, it's such a special day that the Lord gives instruction on how everything is to unfold so that nothing is left out, so that there are no details that are overlooked. And so, first, Moses is told that you are to get the animals that will be used as sacrifices, a bull and two rams. And the instruction is clear. These are to be animals without blemish. They are to be young and healthy, in other words. Really, they are to be among the best available. And so, this is not an opportunity to dispose of that bull that has been sickly or that ram that has been unruly, but rather this is the most valuable of the herd or the flock that is to be brought to the Lord. And then they are to gather unleavened cakes and bread, this anointing oil and fine flour, put all of this in a basket and bring all of these things into the courtyard before the tent of meeting. And then when those supplies are gathered, bring Aaron and his sons, bring them into the courtyard as well before the tent of meeting and wash them. Now, this washing is a ritual process indicating the need for spiritual cleansing. This is not about taking a bar of soap and, and scrubbing oneself physically as a mere outward event, as it were, but it's an acknowledgement of the need of cleansing from sin. Recall how David says in Psalm 51, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Again, remember from last week, Exodus 28 verse 1, that these are priests who are from among you. These are not men who are inherently holy or inherently righteous, but just like the rest of the people, these are men in need of atonement for themselves. And throughout this consecration ceremony, not only here in the washing, but as we'll see in a few moments from these sacrifices that are offered on their behalf, we learn over and again of the need for cleansing in order to enter into the holy space of God. Now, it's doubtful that they would wash their entire bodies here in the courtyard. We don't have explicit detail, but it's probably just their hands and feet and perhaps their head as well. And the water that would be used would be taken from the bronze basin. Now, this is another piece of furniture that we'll read about when we get to chapter 30, another piece of furniture there in the courtyard. 
And you might think of this bronze basin as something that might resemble a large birdbath resting upon the ground in the courtyard between the altar and the entrance to the tent of meeting. And so, if someone is coming into the courtyard to bring their animal for sacrifice, as they come in through the gate, remember the first thing that they will see is the altar of sacrifice. And just beyond that would be then this bronze basin, and beyond it, the entrance, of course, to the tent of meeting. And then after this ritual of washing, Moses is told, take and prepare all of their garments, the garments that we read about in detail last time in chapter 28. And so, if cleansing signifies the need of removal of defilements, then putting on this clothing, this priestly clothing, is being invested with these garments, indicating the need for divinely provided covering, covering that comes from Him. Remember, there's the robe underneath, and then the ephod is this outer garment along with the breast piece. And remember, there are two stones upon his shoulders set in gold filigree, and upon those stones are engraved the names of the tribes of Israel, six on either stone. And then there are twelve stones in addition upon his heart, each of those inscribed with the names of the children of Israel. And then there is this turban with the golden plate upon the front inscribed with that engraving holy to the Lord. So then after Aaron is washed through this rite of cleansing, as he is then clothed with these high priestly vestments, he is then to be anointed with oil. And we learn later in chapter 30 that this is sacred oil that is blended with various fragrances to emit a pleasant aroma. And so, the anointing oil indicates that Aaron is to be set apart, consecrated, holy to the Lord. To anoint is not only to indicate that this is the one whom the Lord has selected for this office, but to be anointed with oil also points to the Spirit of God who will enable, who will equip this one who is called to office. Now, David in Psalm 133 speaks about this precious oil being poured upon the head of Aaron, dripping down his beard and even running down the collar of his robes. And what David does there in Psalm 133 is he connects this anointing ceremony to the unity of God's people. He writes, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like this precious oil placed upon his head, running down the beard and into the collar of the robes. Now, on the one hand, what David is doing there is making a statement of fact. Aaron represents the people of God, and just as he is anointed and set apart to the Lord, in the same way the entire covenant community is to be devoted to God as they are in unity with the high priest. But this isn't only a statement of fact there in Psalm 133. On the other hand, it's a charge for us to heed. Because of the union that we share with the high priest, we are therefore to dwell at peace with one another. Now, I think it's worth repeating. This anointing with oil is not a bare ritual, but it is meant to indicate the need for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is needed to set them apart for this task 
and the Holy Spirit is needed to equip them. It is the Lord who sets them apart, and it is the Lord who gives what is needed. Of course, we don't have priests, prophets, kings as of old, but the same is true for church leaders that the Lord gives today. He is the one who appoints them. He is the one who sets them apart. He is the one who equips them to do the task that He calls them to do. And the church leaders that we have today are, like the priests of old, sinners in need of grace. They know what it's like to have weaknesses revealed and to be tempted by sin. They know what it is to need to come to Christ again and again for the pardon of sin. Your pastors, your elders, your deacons are weak men who deal with indwelling sin and temptation all around. And so when they teach you, when they warn you, when they encourage you, and even when they lovingly admonish you, it's not out of a posture of having arrived, so to speak, but as a fellow sinner helping another sinner. And so you would be wise to listen to the many years of wisdom that they have to offer because they're not just feeding you some pious platitude, but rather they are telling you what they have found to be true in their own lives as they have trusted in the Lord, as they have believed in the promises of God, as they point you to the same Savior that they are in need of for forgiveness and for growth in grace. And so from the washing with water to the clothing of garments that are placed upon him to the anointing of oil, what the priest is being told through this process is you are not good enough. You are not holy enough. You are not clean enough. You are not empowered enough. You are not sufficient in yourself. But again, the Lord is, and He will give what is needed. He will give cleansing. He will provide covering, and He will provide the indwelling Spirit. And then as we move along in the text, we learn about three sacrifices offered during this ordination ceremony. This is our second point this evening, three holy sacrifices. Now, it might appear that the priests are ready at this point. Think of it, Aaron is washed, He is clothed in these newly prepared garments with the radiant colors and the splendid gems upon his heart, even the sweet-smelling anointing oil still dripping from his beard, but something is still needed. They might look great from the outside, but as we talked about last time, there is still the need for atonement. There is iniquity, guilt, and defilements within that must be atone for. And this is the first sacrifice that we read about. This sacrifice of the bull that is offered is for this very purpose, this purpose of atonement. We read that Aaron and his sons are to lay their hands upon the head of the bull. And this is not merely touching the bull because he's a little smelly and I don't really want to get too close, but this is really pressing or leaning heavily upon the head of the bull, indicating that need for transference of guilt from the priest to this animal that will substitute. It is guilt that plagues the conscience with shame, and it is that guilt that must be removed. And then the bull is killed right there in the courtyard in the tent of meeting. And so the message is clear. What happens to the bull is what the priest deserves to happen to him. 
And since the priest represents all of the people, what happens to the bull is what the people deserve to happen to them, what we all deserve. The wages of sin is death, but the mercy of God is seen in the provision of a substitute. And as the bull is killed, we then read of these details of the manipulation of blood, that some is to be placed upon the horns of the altar and poured, and the rest of the blood poured out on the base of the altar for its consecration. We read that the liver and the kidneys are singled out there in verse 13, probably because these were organs that would have been used in pagan rites for the purpose of divination. And so the Lord makes clear that those organs are to be consumed in the fire of the altar, lest they be tempted to look to something else besides the means that the Lord has already provided to reveal His will. And then finally, in this sacrifice, we read that a portion of the bull, these defiled parts of the bull, are to be burned outside of the camp. And as we learn at the end of verse 14, this bull is a sin offering. And this offering must come first because, of course, our sin is the biggest hindrance to us having a right relationship with God. Sin must be removed before we can come to Him. It is atonement that must precede everything else. We read in Leviticus 17, verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. But this isn't the only sacrifice for the priests. Remember, there are two rams that were brought in preparation. And so we learn next about the first ram. Once again, the priests are to place or rather press heavily, as it were, their hands upon the ram's head. But this time, the sacrifice is treated a little bit differently. There is blood that is sprinkled on the side of the altar, but the entire animal is to be consumed there upon the flames. In verse 18, we read that this is called a whole burnt offering. As the entire animal is burned upon the altar, the worshiper, in this case the priest, is to give himself in total dedication and service to the Lord. And as we read, this is a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a life of total sanctification. And then finally, with the third animal sacrifice, we turn to the other ram. Once again, the priests lay their hands upon the head of the ram, identifying themselves with it. But with the second ram, we read all sorts of details about the manipulation of blood. There are some that is placed upon the ear, either on the top or the lobe of the right ear. There is blood placed upon the thumb of the right hand. There is blood placed upon the big toe of the right foot. And there is more blood that is thrown on the side of the altar. There is some blood that is mixed with oil, and it's sprinkled on the priests and upon their garments. And there is still more that's involved with this second ram that we'll return to next time. But for now, notice, this is a lot of blood. Think about this scene unfolding for the very first time. Everything is newly constructed. It's clean, it's colorful, and then in a matter of hours, 
there is blood everywhere. There is blood on the ground right there in the courtyard where the animals are killed and prepared. There's blood all over the altar, blood upon the horns, upon the floor of the altar, upon the sides. There is blood on the priestly garments, and there's blood on the priest himself, on his head, his hand, his foot. What's the deal with all of this blood? Now, the first few parts of this consecration of service make sense to us. We understand the ritual of cleansing with water. It makes sense to us. We understand the anointing with oil. We all get that imagery. It even makes sense for us as we think about this bull offering that's offered as a substitute for sin, the need for atonement. We understand this ritual of transference of guilt from our reading of the rest of Scripture. We understand this whole burnt offering that the call upon that the believer in Christ is a life of total devotion or consecration to God. We get that. But what doesn't seem to fit with our logic is blood placed upon the earlobe, the thumb, the big toe. Why sprinkle blood upon these brand new colorful garments? And even more than that, as we read in verse 21, that it is through this ritual of the sprinkling of blood that Aaron and his garments are holy. How can this be a cleansing act? Why is this called being cleansed with blood? Well, the short answer, again, back to Leviticus 17, is blood makes atonement for your soul. And in Hebrews 9.22, that portion of Scripture that Adam read in our call to worship this, morning, or this evening, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But to answer those questions a little bit more thoroughly, we need to understand how all of this points to Christ, how all of this is connected to the Lord Jesus Christ and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Him. And so this is our third point this evening. Christ, our sufficient and final substitutionary sacrifice. Christ, our final sacrifice. Now, in all of this instruction from the Lord to Moses atop Sinai, we've seen how all of this has been fulfilled and points to Christ Jesus. The tabernacle is the very place in which God will come and dwell in intimate presence with His people. John capitalizes on that in John chapter 1 when he says that the Son of God comes and takes flesh upon Himself and tabernacles among us. The lampstand points to the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. The bread of presence symbolizes the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. The curtain separating the two inner rooms of the tabernacle, later the temple itself, is torn in two at the death of Jesus as a way is opened to God. And it's the book of Hebrews that helps us to understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that we're reading here about the priesthood. Because the refrain that we find throughout the book of Hebrews is Jesus is a better high priest. He is a faithful high priest. He is the great high priest. He is the final high priest. He is the high priest that we all need. And in this consecration ceremony for the high priest, we learn of the wonder of Christ fulfilling all of these things. 
And so think for a moment here of the washing, the anointing, and the sacrifices themselves, and think about how Christ fulfills all of this. When our Savior was baptized at the beginning of His earthly ministry, that was not because He had any need, of course, for cleansing, but He is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. At that baptism, He is the anointed one as the Holy Spirit descends in visible form upon Him. He gives His life in utter and absolute devotion to His Father in heaven, every step of His earthly life fulfilling the purpose for which He came. And the sacrifice was not offered for Him, but of course He is that final sacrifice as He lays His life down for lost sinners. And as the priests leaned upon those substitutionary animals through hands of faith, we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. We acknowledge our need for that transference of guilt, trusting in His substitutionary work upon the cross where He was reckoned as sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And think of that part of the sacrificial bull that was burned outside of the camp. Remarkably, the writer of Hebrews draws a connection between the sacrifice taken outside of the camp because of its defilement. It is the most lowly part of the bull that is removed outside. And he draws a connection between that and the death of our Savior. Hebrews 13, 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. He was sinless, and yet He went to that cursed, defiled place outside of the city for us. In every way, Christ was treated as a curse for us. As Pastor McWilliams stated this morning in his sermon from Mark 7, He takes our guilt that we might be cleansed, justified, and sanctified. Philip Ryken writes, whatever we need from God, protection, provision, peace, healing, comfort, guidance, forgiveness, victory over sin, any other form of divine assistance, we are invited to ask for it in the name of Jesus Christ. And for the, for the one who has trusted in Christ alone for salvation, this text places a calling upon you. It's a calling of devotion, of service, of consecration to Him. This is not something that is just relegated, again, to those priests of old. This is not something just for church leaders, but this is for all believers in Christ Jesus. And so, fourthly, and, and very briefly, here are just a few applications for the believer in Christ. It is the shed blood of our Savior that not only cleanses us from defilement, but it is the shed blood of Christ that consecrates, that sets us apart from this world, to live a life of service and devotion to Him. As we might think of that four-stage process in that ordination and consecration ceremony, and that helps us to understand the calling that is before every believer in Jesus. 
In other words, think of these stages of the consecration of the high priest and how that helps us to understand our own devotion to the Lord. Think of those steps again, washing, clothing, anointing, sacrifices of blood. First, the washing. Christ, again, is the one who cleanses us from sin. And it's the reality of that cleansing in Christ that feeds our conscience with peace and comfort and assurance of pardon. Hebrews 10.22, because our hearts have been sprinkled, because we have been washed in Christ, let us draw near in assurance. You hear the charge and the calling there, don't you, for the believer in Christ? Draw near to Him in devotion, obedience. Draw near in assurance of pardon. And then think of the process of clothing. After being cleansed of our defilement, we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. In Galatians 3, verse 27, the apostle Paul writes, you were held captive by the law, but now by faith you are justified and have put on Christ. And since we are accepted only on the basis of what Christ has done for us, we long to walk in Christ's likeness. We have put on Christ in a sense in a definitive fashion as we are justified, and we long to continue to put on Christ in that process of sanctification. And then think of the anointing. 1 John 2.20, you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit who dwells in your hearts. It is the Holy Spirit who grants you knowledge and understanding. It's the Holy Spirit who enables you to know the truth and walk in the truth. And those sacrifices also help us to understand the charge of devotion to the Lord. Think again of that burnt offering in which the entire sacrifice is consumed in the flames, just as we are to dedicate our entire selves to Him. There is no portion of our life that is to be relegated for ourselves, but all is to be given to the Lord. I was thinking again of the illustration that Pastor McWilliams used this morning toward the end of his sermon, those final words of the dying missionary, from head to foot, I am righteous. We are sprinkled clean in the shed blood of Christ. From head to foot, we are consecrated in Him. There is blood upon the ear, the thumb, the toe, indicating that we belong to Him in our entirety. And why the ear? That we might listen more intently to His Word. And why the thumb? That everything that we do with our hands, all of our labor that we are engaged in, should be given to Him. And why the toe? Because everywhere we go, the general trajectory of our lives should be one of increased devotion and love to Him. We belong to Him. He owns us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Really, it is that price of the precious shed blood of Jesus. Therefore, give your body to Him. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, He died that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and was raised again. And so, while we no longer serve Him at the tabernacle, of course, we serve Him as we praise His name. We serve Him as we give sacrificially. We serve Him as we devote ourselves to Him. 
We serve Him as we care for the needs among our church family, as we seek to love those whom the Lord has put in our lives. We serve Him as we seek to bear faithful witness to our beloved Savior. As we close, again, Hebrews 13, this is verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says, "'Therefore let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach that He endured.'" To hear the charge that the writer of Hebrews has for us, for the one who is in Christ Jesus. For here, in this life, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruits of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so may our heart's desire be to live a life that is more and more pleasing to our beloved Savior.